Kia ora. Welcome to the Arise Church podcast. For more details, you can find us at arisechurch.com. But right now, we're going to hear a message from myself, our Wellington campus pastor, Chris White. We really trust you'll enjoy today's message. I've had this revelation, and you know when you've had a great revelation because you can take that revelation and you can apply it to to multiple areas of your life. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to grab that revelation. I'm going to try and somehow apply it to what, I'm doing, what we're doing here today. And uh, I haven't said it out loud yet. And you know how sometimes revelations sound really good in your head? And then it comes out loud and you realize maybe it didn't quite land. We'll see how it goes today. So, that's, that's, so I've been reading this book. A book was recommended to me. And, it's, uh, and the book's really about some guy's done research for, for years into highly successful teams around the world. We're talking highly successful teams. An American guy, he actually studied the All Blacks as part of that and looked at what makes teams incredibly successful. And, and he started to draw some conclusions. But what really uh, grabbed my attention from, from the get-go was he was talking about uh, this challenge they did with small teams. They're analyzing team dynamics. And this challenge they did was they gave this team, each team had like a, the same set of you know, items. It was like dried pasta, a tape, string, and a marshmallow. And all they had to do was build a tower as high as they could build it. The marshmallow needed to be on top. And so they started to analyze each team, their dynamics, how they worked to see how successful, successful they would be. They started to analyze so many teams. They were looking at students, how they did it. They were looking at graduates, you know, CEOs, lawyers. And they could start to predict with fairly good accuracy, depending on who was in the team, as to how high that tower would be. So students did well. Graduates did even better. Uh, lawyers were nearly at the top. So some lawyers in the room were like, yeah, no, that's us. Uh, but what amazed me was who was at the very top. It was actually kindergarten students. They topped the lot. And, and, and the, the, the kind of reasoning why was that the adults spent so long brainstorming, trying ideas out, deciding who was boss, and then divvying out the tasks, whereas the kindergarten kids just got in there and made it happen. You know what I mean? Uh, now, that wasn't the revelation, by the way, but I just thought it was interesting. Uh, um, carry on. And they're doing experiments, and they did an, an experiment called the bad apple experiment. So what they were trying to do was, without telling the teams, they would have a team working together and they would put someone in there who was the bad apple, okay? So their, their goal was they were there to disrupt as much as they could what was going on in the team. They weren't going to do it, obviously. Maybe they were going to be antagonistic. Maybe they were going to be just tired and bored. Maybe they were going to be just like, you know, uh, always pushing back on ideas. I don't know what it, what it was. And they were going to see how much effect would this have on the teams. Well, they could tell straight away it had a drastic effect. No one knew what was going on except for that person. But there was only a handful of people on each team. But by the end of each experiment, at least one other person on the team was imitating what that person was doing. If they're lying their head on the table, you know, just bored, someone else would start doing it. Their effect was enormous. But there was one team they couldn't have any effect on. And they're trying to work out what is going on here. And there was one guy who somehow seemed to distract from this antagonist, you know? He, he, wasn't, he had no idea this guy was doing it on purpose, but all the time he distracted the attention away. And he actually kept everybody focused on the task. They realized the thing that he did was he made the group members feel safe. Feel safe. And he said, this is one of the three key things that makes a team incredibly successful. I'm thinking, safety? Is that, you know, really? All blacks? Is that one of their big things, you know? But apparently it is. If you read the book, you know, you'll find that out. But anyway, uh, the revelation that I had that I could start to now apply to everything was this. 
Sometimes we don't know what the most important things are that keep us on course. Sometimes we actually don't know what they are. And because of that, we can easily be led astray without even knowing it. The second thing is this. It's often the little things that make the biggest difference. It's often the little things that make the biggest difference. Today, I want to focus on just three things. Three things that the Apostle Paul writes about near the end of his letter to the Roman church. Significant letter. Three things that seem fairly insignificant when you read them quickly. However, they unlock keys to success. They unlock the life that endures. The life that can walk through whatever comes at it. They unlock to how we can get to the other side, to the promise that God has for us. So my message title is Three Little Things That Make a Very Big Difference. Sounds like a children's book, doesn't it? Eh? Could be that I've just you know, had a recent child and I'm reading lots of children's books. But let's just, three little things that make a very big difference. Come on, are you with me today? All right, all right, let's get into this. Romans 12, 12 says this. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. That's it. Three things, 10 words, small but extremely powerful. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in, pr in prayer. Man, this book of Romans was significant because uh, Paul wrote, just outlined what the gospel really means. It's the kind of the systematic approach. Some people thought that he was about to go on a missionary trip and they thought that he was suspecting it could have been dangerous. Perhaps he wouldn't have survived. So this was his attempt to actually get out the gospel message systematically. But then after he, he, he speaks the whole gospel, then after that, he starts giving all this advice, so much advice, how we should treat authorities in our lives, how we should treat people who don't know God. He encourages us to consider our influence on each other's lives, how our actions could be misinterpreted. We should consider that, how our, our true act of worship is to lay down our life completely. That's what real worship is how our lives are intertwined with each other. We're the body of Christ. He talks about the power of love and how we should hate evil. But smack in the middle of all of this, smack in the middle of all this, he gives these words. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. It's like three ingredients to a highly successful life in God. It's what we come back to. It's what keeps us on track. Today, I believe these words are going to encourage you. I think they're going to anchor us and they're going to help us to, to take us through to a successful place. So let's just start with point number one, shall we? We are joyful in hope. Joyful in hope. Romans 12, 12 in the Amplified Version says it like this. That first part, constantly rejoicing in hope because of our confidence in Christ. Why can we be joyful in hope? Well, because of our confidence in Christ, that's why. We have confidence in Christ. It's because of Christ that our sins have been forgiven. And He's given us access to a relationship with God, undaunted, unseparated. It's because of Christ, the one that died in our place, that now we have access to the blessings of God. And it's not because of anything we've done or we earned, but those blessings come because we are part of the family of God. It's like we are heirs of Him. It's kind of like He's some rich property tycoon and we're going to inherit everything that He has, you know? And that's the amazing thing. The Bible says we are heirs. In Romans 8, it says this. Now, we, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Christ has been raised from the dead. 
The power of Christ who raised him from the dead is alive in us. Romans 8 says this, And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Come on, we need to give God praise for that. It's because of Christ we have peace. It's because of Christ we have eternal life. It's because of Christ we can trust God that He will find and fulfill His promises in us. Check this encouraging verse in Hebrews. So God has given both His promise and His oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. How good is that? Therefore, we who have fled to Him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for ourselves. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He's become our eternal priest in the order of Melchizedek. It's because of Christ. It's because of Christ. It's because of Christ. That's why we have hope. It's because of Christ. But also, we're called to have joyful hope. Joyful hope. How do we have joy? How do we foster joy when we're not seeing what we want to see? How do we foster joy when our current circumstances are painful, physically painful or emotionally painful? How do we foster joy when we feel like we have to work so hard that we are exhausted? Joy focuses on hope. Joy doesn't take its eyes off hope. That no matter what circumstances we're walking through, joy kind of dares to lift its head. It looks up over the precipice, looks at the horizon and sees hope on there. Ultimately though, it's not about what we hope for, but it's about who we hope in. That's the difference that we make here. Because sometimes even what we hope for can be misguided. So the ultimate goal of hope and the source of its joy is who? It's who? Let's read this in Hebrews 12, starting at verse 1. Let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross. Man, you got to let those words sink in. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross. That's unbelievable. He endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor besides God's throne. Man, in this scripture, we see this incredible example of Jesus himself walking through one of the most painful experiences of his life, yet somehow he could look over it and he could see joy beyond it. Like, how do you imagine that? It's torturous. It's horrific. It was shameful for him, yet he saw joy. Why? Because he could see his father. He could see his father's faith. He could see man reconciled to their father. He could see hope in that. And suddenly, through all of the pain, there was a sense of joy that was welling up within him. This says in Luke twenty-two forty-two, he went on to say, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet not what I will, but I want your will to be done, not mine. Can I just say this? Joy does not deny pain or ignore tragedy, but it sees beyond it. You know, in all of our lives, we have heroes that we look up to. You know, there's people who are significant, who've made an impact in our lives. And uh, 
And years ago, I met this amazing couple. Just, they seemed enthusiastic, full of joy, full of positivity. Yet I knew that they'd experienced many, many tough trials in their lives. You would never know from looking at them. Some of them were even tragic. They uh, ran a Bible college that I attended in my early 20s. And, uh, and uh, it was amazing getting to know them. A little while later, uh, I got to tour. This is Trevor and Jan Yaxley. Some of you may have heard of them, may know them. Um, many years later, I got to tour with Trevor. I was in a band. He was the guest speaker. And we we're touring around different parts of New Zealand. So we spent hours on a bus. And every time I had a chance to sit next to him, I'd just ply him with questions. I'd just ask him about his life. How did you do this? How did you break through on this area? How did God speak to you about that? We started asking questions. And I took the courage to ask him about probably the biggest tragedy in his life when his teenage son was killed in a car accident. And we talked about that moment. And uh, it was significant. That, that night, his son had been preaching, um, preaching at a youth outreach. A whole lot of young people there, a whole lot of other teenagers there, yet his son was the one who was preaching. Many people that night gave their life to Jesus. And then his son was driving home, and they lived a long way. It was an open road drive. His son left quite significantly before him. And then Trevor was following quite a way behind. He eventually came across the car wreckage. The ambulance was already there, and he knew what had happened. He pulled over, and uh, the ambulance driver stopped him. And even when he identified himself as the father, he said, look, there's no way we're going to let you come and see this, this wreckage. We just don't, you know, this is not what we want anyone to see. And I just remember distinctly what Trevor said. But he said this out loud. He said, I'm going over there to celebrate the life of my son. And either you're coming with me or I'm going to go alone. And he walks over to the site. It must have been a horrific moment. I never want to try and imagine what that would feel like. You know, son who just moments ago he'd been so incredibly proud of. And now his life had come to a tragic end. And he's standing at that wreckage site and he starts talking to the ambulance driver. And I don't know what happened in their conversation. But by the end of their conversation... He led that ambulance driver to the Lord. He managed to tell them there's life beyond this life. Somehow through that wreckage, through that tragedy, Trevor's eyes looked up. He said, you know what? I'm going to see my son again. His life is not over. And in that moment, he pulls someone else up. He says, hey, you've got to see this hope. You've got to see this joy to which you would never experience on your own. But God has something greater for you. God has something beyond this life. That even if your life feels like it's a tragic end, then God has hope beyond. There's something incredibly powerful in that. Our joy does not deny pain or tragedy. But somehow, even when the worst happens to us, it can see above it. It dares to lift its head. Look to the one, the author, perfecter of our faith, and says, I will never leave you and forsake you. We're joyful in hope. But number two, we're patient in affliction. Man, this uh, next passage I'm going to read is from the book of Ephesians. And this, I love this passage because it helps me to understand how do you have patience in affliction? Because the truth is, our life many times feels like it's a battlefield. It's a battleground. And, and, and even the Bible says there is a war on for our lives. So how do you have patience in affliction? Well, Ephesians 6 says this, Therefore, put on the complete armor of God so that you will be able to successfully resist and stand your ground in the, day, in the day, evil day of danger. 
and having done everything that the crisis demands to stand firm in your place, fully prepared, immovable, victorious. Man, that's an amazing, that's an amazing translation, by the way. Our first port of call is that what we need to do, our first port of call is that we need to do everything that the crisis demands. In other words, patience is not an excuse for laziness. We need to be diligent and respond accordingly. We need to do the hard work, get the advice, put into action that good advice. But once we've done these things, then all that's required of us is to be steadfast, steadfast, stand firm. I love the amplified version of the Bible because what it does is it takes a word or it takes a phrase and then little square brackets. It actually goes on to kind of further describe what that word or that phrase means because we may not pick it up because, of course, none of us read, you know, Greek, uh, you know, off, offhand, offhand. Well, maybe there are some, I don't know, but, uh, but I don't certainly. Uh, um, and so in this phrase here, it has to stand firm. It goes on to expand what that phrase means and it says these words, in your place, fully prepared, immovable, victorious. Man, that's powerful. In your place, fully prepared, immovable, victorious. These are the traits that help us to be patient in affliction. Ask yourself, am I in my place? Am I standing where I need to be? If not, then go and take your place, wherever that is, whatever that looks like. Number two, am I fully prepared? Have I done all that I need to do? All that God has asked of me. And once you've asked yes to those questions, then you just need to do this. Be immovable. Be immovable. Stand on that spot. Don't move from that spot. No more action is required. You just keep standing there. You know, when that, when that storm comes, you just stand there. When everything seems to be going up and down, you just stand there. You're just immovable. You just stand in that spot and don't move anywhere. Don't ever forget in the darkness what God has told you in the light. And I praise God for moments of light. I praise God when moments when we get to come together, we get to praise God together, join with us as saints. We're standing side by side. And in those moments, God often speaks to us. He comes and He encourages us, gives us a word. Maybe it's in your time with God and God speaks to you, gives you that word. Then when you stand in a place of darkness, man, don't forget that word. Hold on to that word. Because I tell you what, affliction does come. But we don't want to let go of what God's told us. And then the last thing is this. We stand victorious. Victorious. Victory is on its way. God will do what He said He will do. God cannot lie. He will not, he will not lead us astray, but He will lead us to victory. That's what He does. Can I just say a word of caution at this point? And, uh, you know, maybe you think this thing feels like a little bit of a side tack, but I just feel like this is important when I was preparing today. Sometimes we try and explain things. As human beings, we love to explain life. We like to have rules that we can explain everything by. We have this rule that somehow we believe that all of life should be fair, that things should work out in a fair kind of way. And it's just, you know, we might say we don't, but in the back of our head, that's what we keep coming back to. So therefore, if bad things happen to someone, they must have been a bad person, you know. We won't say that to their face. Certainly wouldn't say that to them, especially if it's a spouse or a family member. Uh, uh, we wouldn't do that. Um, but, uh, 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 but then we think, and if you, I'm truly a good person, then truly nothing really bad 
could ever happen to me. We like the Psalms. Hey, we like the Psalms because, you know, the righteous always win. The wicked, wicked always get crushed under the feet of God. And we love that. We love that. Especially when we imagine someone that we don't like. We didn't, we don't, maybe we don't. God loves the way of the righteous and they grow brighter and brighter, but the wicked God crushes under his feet. That should be struck down by lightning and burnt to a crisp. That's not actually a psalm. I just made that one up. But, um, but that's, that's how we view psalms. That's how we often think, you know. But however, the, the story of Job, the whole book of Job, that makes us feel incredibly uncomfortable. You know, how many people like to go there every day? Read Job. That'll encourage your spirit. Now, that'll be great. Um, you know, Job was a righteous man, yet Satan was allowed to push Job. Satan was allowed to take his family, his possessions, his health. And God just seemingly seemed to allow him to do that. And that doesn't make any sense. Yet what seems to be the strongest message to come out of Job was how Job handled himself. He didn't curse God and die, even though people kept telling him he should do that. Even though his friends accused him of covering up hidden sin, this must have been the reason. Hidden sin of your life. We're all clearly on that one, you know. That's quite obvious to all of us. You know, even his wife told him he should give up. You know, there's, there's a great marriage waiting to happen. In fact, he was the opposite. He was quite bold with God with his feelings and frustrations. But he never lost his patience with God. He never lost his patience with God. He kept up the dialogue. He kept reminding God, hey, God, this is what you said you would do. He kept holding God to account. God, hey, hey, I thought this was true about you. If it's not true, you just let me know. And in the end, God vindicated him in front of his friends. Hey, you guys, you thought there was sin in his life. There was never that. That's never why this happened. But the funny thing is, God never explains why it happened. He never gave him an explanation, something that could hold their hat on. We feel comforted by the fact that Job had his fortunes restored, you know, his wealth was recovered. But again, God never explained why he did that. It just seemed to happen. He restored everything back without explanation. So what's the enduring message here? Let's go back to these three little things that make a big difference. And one of them is patient and affliction. Job stood his ground patiently, without explanation, without understanding why things were happening around him. And he was held up as one of the great men of all time. In James 5, it says this, we give great honor to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end, for the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. By the way, God will always come back to his character. He's full of tenderness and mercy. And God will show you tenderness and mercy no matter what you're working through. But we give great honor to those who endure under suffering. It's a great honor to be patient in affliction. And my final point, if the keys could come, we need to be faithful in prayer. Faithful in prayer. The last of our three little things that make a big difference. There is so much you can say about prayer, but the key to this is the word faithful. Faithful in this context means to be loyal, to be devoted to, give attention to. As I was preparing this message, I felt the strong impression that even as I started talking about this, that some people would be in this room, or maybe you're watching online, maybe you're in Masterton, and in your head you're going, ah, man, I can't even pray for five minutes. 
faithful in prayer. Maybe I could just stick with two little things that can make a big difference, you know? You know, this is what I felt was going to encourage you. I felt like God wanted to encourage you. Start with where you're at. Start with where you're at. If it's five minutes, start with five minutes. I got a friend of, of mine and, um, and I recommended him a book about, about how to form habits in your life. And he read it and he wanted to start running. And, uh, you know, there were specific actually chapters around that. And so uh, the, the book instructs you to start the habit of running. You've actually just got to start with the habit. And, and, and so it says, get up, get dressed, get your clothes on, go for a run, but don't run for any longer than five minutes. Five minutes is all you're allowed to run for. And you must do that for three weeks. And I'm like, wow, that's a bit, bit, bit odd. So what you do, you get up, you get dressed, get your shoes on, you're all ready to go. You run for two and a half minutes out your door. Then you turn around, you run two and a half minutes home, you know? And I'm like, that just seems ludicrous. Anyway, my friend, uh, he said, man, I've been reading the book. It's great. It's really good. And I've been, I've been running. I said, oh, mate. So you've been doing that? Yeah. I said, Matt, how far are you running now? He goes, yeah, five minutes. And in my head, I'm like, that is just, what the heck? And you're boasting that to me? Like five minutes? I could do that right now. I could do six minutes, you know? I could beat you, you know? And we never talked about running again. You know, that conversation was never going to go well with us. But, you know, I'm like, I'm like wow, that's okay, okay. Uh, a, few, a little while later, I can't remember how long later, uh, he posted on Facebook one of his runs. I'm like, oh, okay. It wasn't a 5K run. It wasn't a 10K run. He, just came, he was just in the middle of, took a photo, as we all do, because, you know, like, man, this is me, it's easy. An ultra marathon. Ultra marathon. We're talking something like 60, 70 kilometers. Not just on the flat. We're talking the Rimataka Hill Ranges, somewhere like that. This was like, you know, cross-country ultra marathon. Like, wow, he really, he really followed what was going on in that book. <laughs> what I'm not saying, some people are going, oh, are we going to do an ultra marathon of prayer? Yes, we are. We're going to pray for four weeks straight. We're not going to eat anything. We're not going to, we're not going to go to sleep, people. There'll be a move of God. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. What am I saying? I'm saying start where you're at. Start where you're at. Mate, if five minutes is all you do, you do five minutes. You do five minutes. You do that. You make it a thing. Five minutes every day. A small thing, but it's a regular thing. It's faithfulness. That's what faithful in prayer is. Our prayers can be all sorts of shapes and forms. It could be prayer like Job, where you're dialoguing with God, where you're expressing your feelings in a really kind of out there way, but you're expressing it and allowing space for God to come and speak to you. You know, Pastor Shannon spoke the other week about creating a secret place with God where God comes and you take that moment and you, you grab a hold of that moment and allow God to move. You're, you're worshiping God, but then you allow God to speak to you. Maybe your prayer could be like Jesus where he actually pulled his friends in close. He said, I need your help right now. You know, the Garden of Gethsemane where he's pulled his friends in. He said, hey, please come and pray for me. Come and pray for me. I need that right now. You know, maybe that's the moment. Maybe for you, you, you pray best with others. And I know life groups here where they'll pray together. There's one, one person who's here this morning and uh, she spoke about their life group at the end of last year that what they did was they... Um, Every time they prayed and God answered a prayer, they write it down and put it in a prayer jar. At the end of last year, they pulled every one of those prayers, answered prayers out, and they read them out aloud, and their faith was stirred. And I've heard of some life groups starting it now. Maybe you want to start it now with your life group. 
faithful in prayer. Man, we started a prayer meeting here on Tuesday nights, 7.30. Anyone and everyone is invited. Just an hour. And why are we doing it? Because we just want to be faithful in prayer. Because God moves when we pray. God does something. Prayer can bring us peace. Prayer can bring us answers. Check this out in Luke 10. For everyone who keeps on asking persistently receives. He who keeps on seeking persistently finds. And to him who keeps on knocking persistently, the door will be opened. Notice it didn't say he who prays the longest. He who prays the most eloquent prayers, the most theologically correct prayers, you know. He who can pray in multi-languages. Woo, come on, man. You can hit multiple languages. No, no, it just says persistent, faithful. If it's five minutes, it's five minutes. But faithful prayer, faithful prayer. And lastly, prayer can be very powerful, very powerful. Can we stand by our feet? I'm gonna read the Scripture out. Prayer can be very powerful. James 5 says this, the heartfelt, and persistent prayer of a righteous man or believer, by, uh, b- by the way, can accomplish much when put into action and made effective by God. It is dynamic. It can have tremendous power. Three very small things. But when you put them into play, they make a significant difference. A significant difference. God wants to move in your life. He is moving in your life. He just wants you to stay the course. And if we could follow these three things, joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, then God will do the miraculous in your life. He'll start to do incredible things. God has the power to move. Right now, we're about to sing a song, but I just want us to lift our hearts and our heads towards God. Close your eyes, if you will. We're gonna invite God into into your life. Lord, I thank you. I thank You, God, that You have made a way for us. God, I thank You that You're working behind the scenes. God, that You have an incredible power at work. God, You just ask so little of us. But Lord, if we could focus on these things, it would make an incredible difference. Lord, I'm praying for everyone right now in this room, in Masterton, watching online. Lord, I pray Your Spirit would come upon them. Your Spirit would rest upon us. God, Lord, give us strength where we need strength. God, where people are right now in the middle of a battle, Lord, I pray You would make them immovable. You'd make them victorious. They would stand strong, stand solid. Lord, I thank You for those in this room, in this place who've lost hope. Lord, come upon them right now. I'm speaking hope that they can't understand. Lord, a peace that is beyond understanding. Joy that we can't explain. Lord, I'm praying that have joy in the battle, joy in the storm. Help them to lift their eyes, lift their heads, lift their vision to see what You see. God, for those who've been walking through tragedy right now, tough times, God, I thank You. You're not only a comfort to us, but You bring joy in the morning. Joy in the morning. Come on, can we thank God? Can we praise Him? Thank you for joining us for the Arise Church podcast. We hope this message has blessed you. For more content or resources, visit arisechurch.com. Matiwa, see you soon.